welcome to New York Public Health Now, where we talk about the why so you can decide what to do. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health here in Albany. We're here at the 14th floor recording tower. And alongside me today is Joanne Morin, our Acting Executive Deputy Commissioner. Good morning, Joanne. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. I'm good. And we're here today joined by one of my favorite people at the New York State Department of Health, Dr. Kirsten St. George. How are you, Dr. St. George? Very well. Thank you, Commissioner. Good morning. It's good to have you here with us today. One thing that we're going to talk a little bit about today is we're going to talk about the why of SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus. And uh, it's called SARS-CoV-2, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Coronavirus number two is what it is called. Uh, we uh, call it now COVID-19. So that's our topic for today. Can you just first, let's just start. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it you do? I'm a medical scientist. I specialize in viruses. I've been with the New York State Department of Health working in public health for 19 years. And prior to that, I spent 19 years in academic medical centers in the U.S. and Australia, working on uh, diagnostic lab medicine and applied clinical research. And prior to that, six years in basic medical research. So I've been in virology a long time. And uh, here at uh, the Wadsworth Center, the uh, viral diseases program is pretty extensive. It's uh, the largest state public health lab in the United States, as most people know. And so the virology program is very large for, for a virology program, very extensive. We have uh, almost 35 staff now, and which is very big for a virology uh, program. Several labs and units uh, with uh, covering a, a wide variety of viruses and types of functions and uh, programs. So we do diagnostic testing, we do reference work, um, specialised types of testing for um, particularly unusual cases. We do outbreak investigations, pandemic response. We also house a number of reference centres for the country for the CDC. We have the national reference centres for influenza surveillance, vaccine preventable diseases, gastroenteric viruses, Uh, We recently took on also additional respiratory virus centres and uh, enteroviruses. We also do a lot of research and development work. We develop new assays and we have a number of research programs on virus evolution and disease um, manifestation uh, correlations with viral evolution. We also do a lot of uh, regulatory work as well for the clinical lab evaluation program. So it's a very diverse program and a, a tremendously experienced team that we work with there. A lot going on down there at Wadsworth, just a lot going on, and, and you lead quite a team down there. Yes. So if you if you would indulge me a little bit, I want to take you back to the year of 2020, which seems like forever ago. I mean, you actually hold a great deal of historic significance in the history of New York State uh, that I don't think our listeners appreciate or know yet. I want to reveal that today. Uh, you actually hold a lot of historic significance at the New York State Department of Health as well, because you were there when the first case of COVID in New York was first uh, detected. And and I want to talk a little bit about how did you feel after that case and how would you put that into perspective to regarding where we are now? So, Dr. St. George, what was it like? So we had just finished developing and uh, getting FDA emergency use authorization on the actual New York assay for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, following the problems with the CDC assay, we had very quickly assembled a small, highly experienced team to develop our own assay at Wadsworth, which we shared with New York City Public Health Lab, and that was submitted uh, within two weeks. We developed it and validated it, submitted to the FDA on the 28th of February, and it was approved. It was authorised by the FDA on the 29th, being a leap year, there was a 29th. 
and it was used that night on some returning travellers very late at night and the results came through in the early hours of the morning, March 1st and three of us were huddled around that real-time instrument, myself and uh, Megan Fischino and Daryl Lamson, the Associate Director for Virology and the uh, Deputy Director for Research, Daryl Lamson. Three of us huddled around the instrument watching the signal curves on the different samples that were in that test run and we saw uh, the signal, the positive signal, come up on the screen. And we all just sort of looked at each other and thought, OK, this is it. Uh, we're off. How little we knew our lives would change that day, yes, didn't we? Yes, I mean, could you have seen this coming, where our lives ended up going based on that one positive test? Well, we had all been watching with increasing concern the situation in China, particularly with the overflowing hospital rooms, patients lined up in hallways, the extremely concerning fatality rate, but also the situation in some other countries. And of course, there were cases on the West Coast here by that stage. um, And we knew it was probably only a matter of time before we started seeing cases in New York. And we had nothing like the knowledge we had now. There were so many unknowns about the virus, the disease, how to handle patients. And we had very little in the way of tests available for our lab or any other lab to use to track the disease spread in the community. So it was a very challenging time and uh, we knew that we were going to have a lot of challenges ahead of us and it was going to be a very, very busy time. We had been through many, many big outbreaks and, of course, the flu pandemic in 2009 was the first one that I had handled. But we'd been through Zika, we'd been through big measles outbreaks and mumps and so on. So we were very accustomed to manning the battle stations and dealing with these situations and we knew that this was going to be a very big one. Listening to you talk about being huddled around with your colleagues, it mm. kind of gives me chills. Uh, and, you know, so my background, I'm, I'm not a scientist, right? And one of the things that I realized through COVID and even now is that we refer to it in different ways. And I don't know that everyone understands why, right? So what I do know is that COVID is caused by the virus, SARS-CoV-2, mm-hmm. right? Um, but why is a virus called SARS-CoV-2? And who actually names the virus or any of the viruses? And shouldn't it be called SARS-CoV-3? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a common comment these days. So the, the name SARS-CoV-2 comes from two things. First of all, COV is a, an abbreviation of coronavirus. It's, it's, a, it's a member of the coronavirus genus and the coronaviridae family. So that's where the COV comes from. SARS is the acronym for uh, Severe Acute Respiratory uh, Syndrome, which refers to the original SARS virus that emerged in uh, 2002, uh, uh, also out of China, and fortunately did not last very long. It it did not cause anything like the number of cases, uh, several thousand cases around the world, and ended in 2004. And we have not seen any cases clinically since 2004. And this virus is very similar, although it does have some distinct differences. And so it was named SARS-CoV-2. It, uh, the, the names are assigned by the International Taxonomy Committee for Virology. And that is comprised as a, of a whole team of actual subcommittees and task groups and so on who specialise in all the different groups of viruses. And they get together and through a whole decision algorithm decide on what the naming of the virus will be. And they assigned the name in February of 2020. 
Uh, they can sometimes take a long time to make the decision on the name, but that decision was made quite quickly. And then the subnaming of the uh, variants as they emerged to give them Greek alphabet names, that decision was actually made by the WHO. So we are awaiting, I guess, the International Taxonomy Committee to see if they will now name some of the new ones or a new lineage, SARS-CoV-3. And that question has arisen because the virus has evolved so far from that original first virus that came out um, from China. It has changed a lot. It has changed enormously. And that's really, you know, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting to me is the virus has changed a lot since December of 2019. It just really has changed a lot. But I, I think it's important to have context here. So as we think about how it's changed a lot, I mean... I'm trying to think of a reference point to understand the difference. Are we talking about the difference between a Ford Explorer and a Jeep Cherokee? Or is the difference just give me a how do I understand this difference? Because it's all these tiny little molecules. Can't even see the darn things. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So I, it, it sort of depends on your frame of reference. So if you're talking about in the context of all viruses, that's possibly a good description. But if you're talking about within coronaviruses alone, no, it's 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 a lot more different than that because I'm I'm not very well not very knowledgeable on cars, but from the little that I do know, those two cars are somewhat similar. Ford lovers might not like that comment, but um, you know they're both SUVs. They're a somewhat similar size, a somewhat similar power, right, right, some, yeah. somewhat similar bells and whistles. They're rectangular little trucks, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas. The original Wuhan strain, as we refer to it, out of uh, out of China, compared to the latest variant um, for SARS-CoV-2, while they look exactly the same under an electron microscope, the newest ones move at a r- tremendously higher speed. So um, my son would say it's like a Ford Explorer with a Hellcat engine in it. <laughs> Oddly enough, there we go. All right, there we go. Yeah, and it's interesting. We talk about viruses moving. What do you mean by that? Because I, I don't think of viruses as moving. I think of them being propelled around there. But when you say it moves, you're not talking about the virus going from one person to another. You're talking about something different, aren't you? Well, n- yes. No, I'm tr- really talking about the speed that it transmits through the population. That's what you're getting at. There we mm-hmm. go. That makes sense, right? Yes, like it's, it's, it's transmission speed through a population. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things about all the variants and subvariants that I've just noticed is how they've gotten much more easier to catch. Yes. And they seem to go from person to person much more efficiently. Continuing on that that line of, of uh, conversation, I mean, we we know that viruses change, mm-hmm. but but how do we know? Like, so with the different variants, how do we know it changes? And what is genomic? Gen- genomic? Genomic. Genomic sequencing. Genomic sequencing. So we can sequence the actual genetic code of the virus, and we do that with a lot of viruses. And sometimes we are only sequencing small portions of the genome because we're looking for specific information in specific genes. But with increasingly increasing frequency now, we actually sequence the entire genome of the virus. And that is what we have done um, in, in the most part for SARS-CoV-2. And we do a lot of that, and so do many other labs around the country and, in fact, around the world. And there is a huge database uh, in uh, a, a public sequence database known as GISAID, G-I-S-A-I-D, where all of these sequences uh, or the majority of the sequences are deposited and are available for analysis. And we do that so that we can look at that 
genetic sequence from positive samples all around the country, all around the world, and we can compare them. We, we can align them on computers, software programs that, that run for us. We don't do these things manually. We, we load them into to computer software programs, and we can align all those sequences run the software programs and from that analyze where in that genetic sequence the differences are, where the mutations have occurred and from that we can see are they for example in the external proteins of the virus which would affect antibody binding that could affect uh, the the ability of the virus to escape immunity or are they in some of the internal genes of the virus uh, internal proteins of the virus that may affect the uh, replication of the virus mm. and so on and so forth so we can infer functional repercussions of some of those mutational changes and then we can grow the virus in the laboratory those of those labs that have bsl3 facilities which we do have uh, many labs do not but we do at wadsworth and we can test whether or not those functional changes actually have occurred with those mutational changes in the genome so when you say we you're speaking of wadsworth yes and is this work done with other laboratories or is this independently within wadsworth so as I mentioned, only labs that have uh, biosafety level three containment facilities can grow that virus. Uh, this applies to um, a number of viruses that are considered to be uh, at, a, at a safety level that requires that kind of containment. And for those labs, um, we do grow the viruses and we do perform those kinds of experiments. The majority of diagnostic labs do not have the, that. Yeah, and really quickly, I think it might be helpful to define what biosafety lab means, by mm-hmm. the way, because I don't know that that's a term of art that everyone has off. But can you give me just a quick understanding of what biosafety lab refers to? Certainly. So it refers to the kinds of uh, safety and containment facilities that we have inside the laboratory and for usual diagnostic uh, laboratories performing microbiology diagnostic tests they have the sort of facilities that are referred to as BSL2 biosafety level 2 and that is your standard diagnostic microbiology like a hospital lab. laboratory for a example? hospital lab uh, the clinical lab so is BSL3 it, it's higher that means we yes, have yes yes what there does that are, mean? There are additional safety procedures, first of all, to get in and out of the lab and a lot of additional documentation. But the staff going into those labs have a lot of additional safety safety um, personal protective equipment that they are wearing. There are a lot of additional safeguards once you're inside the lab, getting in and out of the lab. So the concept is to protect the folks who work in the laboratory, but also protect viruses from leaving the laboratory, right? Absolutely, to contain yeah. them inside the lab. Great. Thank you. We're talking to Dr. Kirsten St. George, the Deputy Director of Virology at the Wadsworth State Health Lab. And as we're talking a little bit more about the, the virus, I'd like to switch our conversation a little bit to talk about the COVID vaccine. It changed once. Now it's changed again. I just got my most up-to-date shot three days ago, you know, which was great. Glad to get the XBB 1.5 change. But what, what does it, why do you think the vaccine is changing? Like, why do we have to change the vaccine? It seems to me like we should just understand what was so necessary to change the vaccine. So it's a little bit similar to having to change it every year for flu. Um, as the virus evolves, those surface proteins on the outside of the virus keep changing and mutating because the genome of the virus keeps mutating. And the antibodies that were produced to the original strain no longer neutralize the virus as efficiently as they did the original strain. And therefore, we need to update the vaccine so that it implements a, an antibody response 
that better neutralizes the more recent strains. The same thing happens with flu. It changes constantly. This virus is changing constantly. And so we need a more updated version of the vaccine that will produce an immunity that is better matched to the currently circulating strains. So when I got my vaccine a couple days ago, Mm -hmm. what I did was told my immune system, I want you to be ready. There's a possible new threat out there. Mm -hmm. This is your chance to be ready. So my immune system now has a chance to actually create, if I get exposed to the virus, which, you know, that happens, right? People get exposed. Whether I'm at work or outside doing life, I get exposed. My immune system, if it gets exposed, will produce antibodies already made and be able to defend myself so I'm less likely to end up in a hospital or worse. And I think that's really just one way of thinking about, like, I'm ready to go. I've got customized protection now, which is good. Yes. So that's helpful. You've got the, the newer antibodies that are better equipped to to neutralize the, the newer strains. I did pretty well with it, by the way. I have a sore oh, arm, so nothing more than a sore arm, but since I'm not a left-handed pitcher, this wasn't all that big of a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, staying on the topic of vaccines, I'll ask you a question that I, I'm going to guess you've probably been asked 100 times already. Does it make a difference for people to be vaccinated? Oh, absolutely. The ability of your immune system to respond is infinitely faster if you are already vaccinated. So if you're not vaccinated, when that virus infects you, there is a time delay between the time your immune system mounts that immune response. And during that time, that virus has all that time to replicate inside you and cause disease. Whereas if you're already vaccinated, your immune system can kick in extremely fast and start to neutralize that virus almost straight away before it can really replicate to a high level and start to cause disease. So your chances of getting severe disease if you are immunized already with a vaccine are infinitely better. One of the things I'm just thinking about maybe is a little bit of a perspective. Like, you've been in New York State from the beginning of the pandemic, you're still here now, and demonstrated all the resilience that goes along with that. You know, But as you think about where we are with the pandemic and your personal journey, any final thoughts on that at all? I'm just curious if there's anything you'd like to share about that. We all knew that it was going to be big and a marathon. I don't think any of us thought it was going to be quite this long. It's been enormously challenging. It's been enormously rewarding to work with so many wonderful people. We are absolutely indebted to our families for the support. And um, it's just still, though, an ongoing, very important healthcare issue. I am a little concerned that people may be a little flippant about it because it is certainly milder than it was in its disease manifestations. But it is still causing significant hospitalisation and fatality rates. It is still causing a significant healthcare burden, which is a societal burden and a society productivity burden. And so I think it really is important for people to understand that with the hospitalisation and fatality rates and therefore understand that, as with influenza, Uh, vaccination and precautions are still really very important for their own protection and for the protection of the loved ones around them. Yeah, thank you, Dr. St. George, for coming to join us today at the 14th floor Corning Tower. My pleasure. And just wonderful to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Joanne Morin, our acting executive deputy commissioner as well. Uh, Great to have you with us. It's been a fun conversation today, and we talked about the why. Like, 
how did this thing happen? The virus changed over the years. It's been three years. The virus has changed an awful lot. And that explains to me why we have a new vaccine. Hopefully people will make a decision to support their own personal health and wellness and get up to date on their vaccine. I want to thank Mike Wren, our executive producer, and thank Sarah Snyder for help in supporting the podcast as well. We'll be continuing our COVID-related conversation on the next episode of New York Public Health Now podcast, and we talk with our in-house expert on coronaviruses, Dr. Paul Masters. Dr. Masters is a research scientist at the Wadsworth Center, the department's highly respected public health laboratory. For the past two-plus decades, his laboratory studied the molecular biology of coronaviruses, which are family of viruses that can cause a number of diseases in not just mammals like humans, yet even birds. It's a conversation we're looking forward to, and I hope you'll join us. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health, and this is New York Public Health Now. 